today on Ag News Daily. You're looking at a disease with incredibly high mortality, sometimes up to 100%, but usually over 80% in the world's largest pig population. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's another sunny day here in the Windy City. I'm Mike Pearson, joined by Delaney Howell for today's edition of the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney, you're back home from Arkansas. Mm -hmm. Did you learn anything good while you were below the Mason-Dixon line? Well, I did, but I brought it to us on the podcast yesterday. So if you haven't listened to yesterday's episode, go back and listen to it, at least the interview part, just learning about Arkansas agriculture. Fantastic, folks. Be sure to check that out. Always stay tuned. You can always catch up on past episodes by visiting our website. Just go to agnewsdaily.com. It'll take you to our home at the Global Ag Network and all of our Previous episodes are hosted right there. Delaney, now you're back in Iowa. We've got news in the world of agriculture. There's a lot of trade news in the headlines today. Yes. What's, uh, what's jumping out at you first? Well, there are a lot of trade headlines, as there has been really over the past year or so. The big headline, I think, that jumped out at me today that happened pretty much right after we got the podcast yesterday was the final ratification of both of Japanese's chambers now have signed off on the U.S.-Japanese trade deal, so it is done, set in stone, going to be put in place January 1st, I believe. Fantastic. That is some progress. We've got a win there for American agriculture. We sure do, Mike. We do still continue to have headwinds when it comes to the deal with China. Mm-hmm. Earlier today, it was announced that it was announced by the Chinese, I should say, that tariffs must be cut if China and the U.S. are to reach an interim agreement on trade. This came out of the Chinese Commerce Ministry, and they said that uh, at least some of the existing tariffs must be rolled back. They're not going to be satisfied just punting on these upcoming December 15th tariffs. They they want to see a rollback. And you know, we'll just have to see what happens. Uh, the ministry spokesman, Gao Fang, was talking to reporters, and he said, quote, The Chinese side believes that if the two sides reach a phase one deal, tariffs should be lowered accordingly. So it does sound like China would take it as a condition of the deal. It doesn't happen, have to happen before the, uh, the, the phase one would have to go into a – or discussions would begin on phase one. But uh, they're really trying to kind of kick this off before December 15th when there will be about $156 billion of new tariffs put on Chinese imports coming into the country. Yeah, and to follow up with that too, so we had news earlier this week that maybe we weren't as optimistic about getting a trade deal done with them, even just phase one before the 2020 elections. But then President Trump said yesterday, he told reporters, and I believe he tweeted out some stuff as well, saying that the talks between the two countries are continuing. And so both sides confirmed that they are indeed talking. Uh, Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer confirmed that as well. But he also confirmed that the U.S. is continuing to negotiate on other trade pacts besides just China, including a trade deal with the European Union. And President Trump said during a recent conference that meetings have been set up between the EU and U.S. and will continue to talk. And I believe that it should or that it will work out very well for everybody. And I think it should. But we didn't have any mention to whether or not agriculture would be included in part of that trade deal. Well, pump the brakes there, Delaney Howell. Um, We had President Donald Trump earlier today 
Of course, he is freshly back from the NATO meeting in London, and he said that he would not rule out the idea of using trade action on countries that aren't contributing enough to NATO. Basically, part of joining NATO requires countries to spend 2% of their GDP on defense, and a lot of European countries just haven't been doing that, and that has rankled President Trump, uh, well, since before the election. And so now he's saying if they don't up their defense spending, he might go ahead and put trade actions or you know tariffs basically on these European countries that aren't spending enough on their defense. So that I imagine mm-hmm. would hamper a deal with the EU. Yes, I would imagine. Wait, can, can we go back to a word that you just said there? Did you say rankled? Rankled. Yes. I've never heard that word before. You've never heard the word rankled? No, I thought you made it up there for a second. I did not. Rankled is a verb. It is a comment that causes annoyance or resentment that persists, hmm. or it is a thing that continues to be painful or fester. So you're like and, a rankle in my side. Uh, no, that would be a, that would be a wrinkle. Um, but my presence could rankle you. Oh, okay. I see. Yes, it is. It is right. Right, it's a verb. Okay, yes. noted. Now I know. Yeah, so you could diagram out that sentence, Delaney Howell. Okay, thank you. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. What other news you got for us today? Well, there's a couple of signups going on that I'm sure our producers would like to be well aware of. The first one here is the USDA has opened or is going to open sign up for the CRP program beginning no- December. I almost said November. December 9th, those CRP acres will be allowed to be signed up for within your local FSA offices. And of course, for those of you that have been keeping tabs on the Farm Bill and listening in with us since the Farm Bill was signed, you'll know that they're opening that cap up to 27 million acres this year as opposed to the 22 million acres that previously were part of the enrollment process. But another sign-up that doesn't have as many people as excited about it is the dmc or the dairy margin coverage program for 2020 the farm service agency said that they've had to send out letters specifically to dairy farmers that haven't signed up for the program yet and that's a vast majority of the dairy operations out there the enrollment deadline is december 13th and they said so far only about just shy of 5,000 of the nation's 37,500 dairy operations have enrolled. So there's still more than 23,000 folks that haven't signed up yet that need to sign up that did sign up in 2019. So I don't know if it's... So these are people that signed up once and then haven't been willing to sign up again. Correct. And so I don't know if that's because there are other things on their plate. They just haven't made time for it. Is it because the DMC program really wasn't as great as it was cracked up to be? I don't know what the answer is to that question, but I will do some digging and find that out. Absolutely. I would not be surprised to learn it's a combination of the two. I think you're probably right, Mike. You know, plus with the rally we've seen in milk prices, maybe folks just don't feel it's as important today as it was Mm -hmm. uh, this time last year. You are so right there. We've seen dairy prices really do well here over this, really the last six months. So maybe they just don't think it's necessary. Well, but folks, if you're a dairy producer listening, it wouldn't hurt to get signed up for that program. Just looking out here at the futures markets, we've got December milk trading in the $19 range, January in the $18 range, and Feb trading in $17 range. So, I mean, the, there's definitely a curve there when we're looking at dairy prices. Don't expect the good times will stick around forever. No. What goes up must come down, right? 
Yeah, right. Right on. Exactly, Delaney. Speaking of that, we do have a fascinating article that was published in Bloomberg yesterday looking at Chinese consumption habits, particularly that of protein. And uh, we all know about African swine fever and how that has driven up the cost of hogs. Delaney, you talked about that yesterday, the cost of pork in China. And one thing that has done is it has made beef in China much more competitive from a price perspective to pork. And China has exploded in beef consumption. Now, the U.S. has not been a major beneficiary of this. Uh, so far, the boom in beef exports has mainly fallen to Brazil. Their beef is, of course, cheaper with the currency the devaluation that's happened down with the real. It's just made more sense for Brazilian beef to make its way into China. But uh, they do say that one company um, – no, excuse me. So South America is accounting for 70% of Chinese beef imports this year, and one company, Minerva, has 21% of those total imports heading into China. Now, this is not a huge thing for America yet, but I am of the feeling that as more Chinese consumers try beef and kind of – get a taste for it, I think this is a consumption shift that'll stick around for a while and should be beneficial for U.S. producers longer term. It sounds like it, Mike. Well, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Mike, I'm actually all out of news. Should we hear a quick Hot Rod Farmer minute before we head into the markets? Let's do it. Welcome to the Hot Rod Farmer Minute. I am Ray Bohax from the Idle Chatter podcast found on the Global Ag Network. I want to truly drive home the message that success on the farm is a three-legged stool, agronomy, marketing, and machinery. I feel the best way is to take real-life scenarios and establish how a poor decision or inaccurate diagnosis of a machinery issue costs your operation money. But instead of referencing just dollars, I will reference it in crop, corn at $3.50 a bushel. My hope is that this comparison in bushels drives home the point of the importance to minimize machinery expense. I know that everyone listening does not grow corn, so please convert the example to current prices for the commodity or crop that you raise. And never forget, it is not what you make, but what you keep that counts. My example today is based upon fluid testing. You do not fluid test the hydraulic system before planting season. The pump fails and you miss the optimum planting window by five days waiting for the new part. Reference from university data, each day past the ideal planting date impacts yield by a half a percent. With a national average yield of 170 bushels per acre, this would be a hit of 2.5% or 4.25 bushels per acre. If you plant 1,000 acres of corn, then the potential yield loss would be 4,250 bushels or $14,875. The cost of the repair would still be the same, but it would have been performed before planting season since the failure would have been predicted by a $25 fluid analysis. By not fluid testing, it costs you nearly $15,000. Let this not be you. Thank you. 
Ray, always some fascinating stuff there. Be sure to check out The Hot Rod Farmer. You can find him on Twitter. You can find him on Facebook. And, of course, you can find the Idle Chatter podcast at the Global Ag Network. Now let's take a look at the markets. We've got mixed trade today with uh, corn and wheat being lower. Beans continuing yesterday's rally, though they did close off the highs. In the corn market, the December contract was down 3.5 cents at 365 and a quarter. March down 1.5 to finish the day at 377 even. In soybeans, January contract up six and three quarter cents to close the day at eight eighty four and three quarters. March also up six and three quarters to finish at eight ninety nine and a quarter. In Chicago, we December contract down three cents at five thirty two even. The March down three and a half cents, wrapped up trading today at five twenty four even. Looking over at the world of livestock, mixed trade in the cattle complex with live cattle slightly higher on the day. December live cattle up 47.50 at 119.92.5. February up 42.50 to close the day at 124.60. In feeder cattle, the January contract was down 32.5 cents at 140.55. The March down 27.5 closed up at 141.15. And weakness in lean hogs. The December contract was down 30 cents at 61.57.50. February down 85, finished up at 67.57.50. And in dairy, the December contract was unchanged on the day at 19.35. January, down 32 cents on the day, wrapping up trading at 18.15. Well, that is where the markets ended. Without further ado, let's kick it off to the interview. This is Jenna Hoffman reporting on behalf of the Ag News Daily. I'm joined here today by Dr. Wagstrom. She is with the National Pork Producers Council, and we're going to be talking a bit about ASF today. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Wagstrom. Thanks for having me on. Um, We're obviously thinking about African swine fever day in, day out, and what we can do to protect the pork industry from it. So a lot of people have been talking about different states establishing emergency plans. So what does that look like um, for the National Pork Producers Council and how you're having an influence on that? Well, one of the things we did is we advocated really strongly for USDA to hold a exercise, a scenario where they played um, with a scenario of how they would handle African swine fever. It's hard to put together one of those. We started last September. And um, in this September, they finally finally held the exercise. It was a series of four days where they had the top 14 swine states by pig population um, go through a series of scenarios, identified strengths and identified weaknesses, and, and then identified how we can become more consistent between states. We move a lot of pigs every day. We estimate we have a million pigs in trucks every day. And so moving from state to state and having the same rules to follow is something we're really going to work hard to make sure we've got. Right. And how good of a connection is that with each individual state's um, council members? So if you look at our state pork associations, most of them are working with their state animal health association or state animal health official. Most cases, the state animal health official is the state veterinarian. And so some states have closer relationships than others. And then some of the states have, with the state animal health organizations, are closer with each other. So there is a 12-state group that is the top 12 pork states that have been working really hard on consistency. They are going to be considered leaders among the state veterinarians. And so if they come up with standards that they feel are appropriate, 
it's really likely we can get the other states to follow suit. We are seeing this outbreak in all parts of the world, of course, just luckily not the U.S. Uh, Dr. Wegstrom, we have seen it especially in Asia. How do you think their markets are affecting our global markets? Absolutely. You know, we've been watching this since 2007 when it started into Russia, spread into Eastern Europe. And it's been a different picture there because it's been in, in wild boar and very few commercial facilities. As it got into China and has spread through Southeast Asia, it has been more of a domestic pig population issue. And um, you're looking at a disease with incredibly high mortality, sometimes up to 100%, but usually over 80% in the world's largest pig population. And we have no control as far as vaccine. So we've heard estimates that if you consider how big that population is, that 25% of the pigs in the world will have died by the end of the year from African swine fever. The end of this year, 2019? By the end of 2019, 25% of the pigs in, in the world will have died. That is a lot of protein that is not available for human consumption. It's a lot of pigs producing a lot of virus that can then spread to other, other um, pigs. It is going to, I think, shake up some of the global protein markets. We have a strong trade effort to try to be able to get into some of those markets, um, try to get by some of our tariffs that are, are preventing our entry. But um, we also are going to have to compete with other proteins, whether it is plant proteins or other animal species proteins, um, to keep to enter that share of the market. Dr. Wagstrom, you made a very good point about the wild boar population being an issue. What is the NPPC trying to promote here in the U.S. as far as eradicating that population? So we worked really hard to get money in the farm bill. We have somewhere around $40 million a year going to wildlife services for control of the wild pig population. In states like Iowa, we may be able to eradicate it. States like Oklahoma, it's more control. The other thing we've been really happy with is Wildlife Services is on the lookout for unusual mortalities. So if they're seeing dead wild pigs that are, you know, more than a, you know, hit by car here or there or whatever, they are now looking at should they test them for both classical swine fever and African swine fever. So we're, we've got that as a sentinel population. Um, obviously, if we got, ever got the disease and it got into our wild pig population, it would be extremely difficult to control. So what is the process for uh, ensuring that the ASF, if we had a case in the U.S. that seemed like it might be ASF, what is the protocol to ensure that it is and make all those boxes be checked? Sure, there are two different ways we can do that. One is if a case comes into one of the veterinary laboratories, and maybe the veterinarian has a suspicion it's salmonella or something that mimics African swine fever. Um, through NPPC's advocacy, we were able to get USDA to agree to an active surveillance program. So that case, the laboratory would look at, say, you know, it could be consistent with what we might see in an ASF pig. They will go ahead and test that sample for African swine fever and classical swine fever. Since June 1st, when the program started, they've tested over 1,500 samples. So doing big numbers, which we're really happy about. Obviously, we're happy they're all negative. The second thing is if a producer 
had a strong suspicion that something was really wrong. Um, you know, there to call their state animal health official, their state vet's office, and a foreign animal disease investigation would take place. So a state or federal veterinary medical officer would come out. They'd collect samples. Depending on how suspicious it might look, um, they would, well, they'll immediately take samples to the state laboratory, but they might go ahead and actually even charter a jet to fly it out to Plum Island for confirmatory testing. Um, in the process of that, they would probably ask that producer not to move pigs until they got the results. You can get results pretty quickly from the state laboratories. And then um, if it were positive, then you go into more of your response strategy. And that response strategy would involve locating the ASF specifically, making sure it's centralized. And then would that barn ever be able to be operated in the future? We're hoping so. So the first thing is, you know, you confirm a positive, and then you look for a way to humanely depopulate those animals. We really need to work on some of those depopulation strategies because large number of animals are, are difficult to handle. We also need to work on disposal strategies. How can we be environmentally responsible if you're having to dispose of large numbers of animals? Um, one of the things we're doing and we're really excited about is um, NPPC worked with Foreign Agricultural Services to um, provide a grant to the Swine Health Information Center. They're doing work in Vietnam. One of the questions they're looking at in Vietnam is, first of all, could they partially depop a site? So multi-barn site, can they depop only one barn, keep the others negative? And then how could you repopulate those barns? So what kind of cleaning protocols, disinfection protocols, downtime, putting in sentinel animals, what are the right um, strategies that we can say are validated for for effective repopulation of those sites. Right, and that brings us to another question that we kind of mentioned before, um, the resiliency of this disease. You know, this um, this disease could be eradicated throughout the world and then be located in some sort of meat that is frozen and then be brought back and possibly uh, restart this process all over again. What concerns are there for MPPC with that and what precautions are they taking for it? Well, first of all, you're right that it's very, very resilient. It survives in meat and blood, etc., um, especially um, at refrigerator or freezer temperatures. Uh, so we're obviously very concerned with making sure Customs and Border Protection keeps looking that infected meat doesn't come into our country. We have very strong laws in the United States about feeding meat-containing uh, plate waste or any meat to animals or to put pigs. Um, we know that if they follow the laws that in certain states they will allow it, but it has to be cooked to um, boiling for at least 30 minutes. We know that that will kill the virus. So having strong prevention and then having strong enforcement of the laws we have around being able to feed meat to pigs um, is um, should be strong enough to keep us safe from that. Could this disease, if a person had eaten it, obviously it's not going to infect the human, but it some way makes it through the system and back out into the barn. Is that a concern as well? It's really unlikely. Unlike foot and mouth disease that can be actually survive in the human's nasal and oral passages, there's no evidence African swine fever does. 
you know, we worry about obviously contamination if they've been handling raw contaminated meat and then didn't wash their hands would be the most likely risk. That's why we're asking producers to consider, um, in Europe, we're seeing that they're actually restricting the types of food that the workers can bring to their in their lunches. Some of the barns are actually providing meals, lunchtime meals for their workers, just to assure the safety of making sure no contaminated products gets to the barn. Is that a practice that you'll hope to see here in the U.S. as well, or if they haven't already started kind of promoting that through the NPPC? We have not started promoting it. I think we have um, recommended our producers evaluate those those um, policies in their own barns. Another good question to pose here is if ASF did come into the U.S., what would happen for trade with the U.S.? So the likely scenario is that our trading partners would all shut us down immediately. We're working on a North American strategy. We already have an agreement with Canada that they would recognize any regions we have, and we would recognize any regions they develop. You know, our priorities then are the Japanese market, the Mexican market, the Korean market, to make sure that they would do the same. Um, and then the strategy is is to be able to confine an outbreak to a defined region so that you could say these counties may be positive, but the rest of the country is negative and you ought to let us ship out of there. If it is too diffuse and too widespread to do that, then the next strategy would be to try to negotiate what's called a compartment. And that would be where we could say these animals are, have been tested to be free of African swine fever. They've moved in um, biosecure transportation. They've had feed from a biosecure feed mill. And they're going to a packing plant that is clean. And so they, this compartment would be, what we'd call it, should be able to still ship. It's going to be a tough negotiation. Um, compartmentalization is recognized by the World Animal Health Organization as a strategy, but in practice, very few times has it been used. Before we go here, Dr. Wagstrom, is there anything else you'd like to add for our listeners that you deem important, especially maybe for producers? Sure, for producers, we're asking you just to reevaluate all of your biosecurity um, practices, asking you to know who your state veterinarian is. Maybe invite your state veterinary medical officers to your farm so you could evaluate um, how they would work with you in a situation. We're asking you to have a consideration on how, how could you effectively depopulate your sites and have a disposal plan for those sites. And then the easy stuff is have a premises ID number. Make sure you validate it that the uh, GPS coordinates of that number match the address. And, um, and be involved in the secure pork supply plan. That's one good thing that uh, pork producers are so good about is being preventative, and I think that we can get ahead of this and stay on top of it here, and hopefully it stays out of the U.S. so we can continue those plans and not have any issues with ASF here in the U.S. Absolutely. That's our hope. We um, have some producers who are doing fabulous things to keep their herds safe. And it's our job from NPPC to try to keep the U.S. herd safe, and we're working hard to do that. Right. 
This is again Jenna Hoffman reporting for the Ag News Daily. Thank you, Dr. Wagstrom and PPC. Thank you. All right, well, I think that does it for Jenna Hoffman's reporting from the National Association of Farm Broadcasters Convention. We've got one more great conversation coming to us tomorrow, Mike, for a little bit more lighthearted of an interview looking actually at the dairy industry. So I'll be able to chat with the producer about that tomorrow. But folks, as mentioned earlier, if you want to catch up on on any of our past episodes, you can always head to agnewsdaily.com and listen to those there. Or you can find us on Google Play, iTunes, Spotify. I think those are our top three destinations. Fantastic, folks. Check it out and uh, stick with us. Tune in tomorrow. Tune in every day to the Ag News Daily podcast. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.